This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal, and I'm speaking right now with Massimo Fagioli, who is a contributor to Commonweal magazine, as well as a professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University. And I want to talk with Massimo a little bit about some of the things that have been roiling the church in recent weeks, specifically the release of the testimony from Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò, the former nuncio to the United States. Uh, Massimo, uh, some weeks have passed now since the release of the former nuncio's testimony, uh, which among a number of explosive charges also alleges that Pope Francis had full knowledge of improper behavior by former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Can you assess where things stand right now and what we know of where this might be headed next? Well, we know that most of the accusations leveled by Vigano against Pope Francis have collapsed because of the excellent work of, of reporting of the journalists, especially American journalists, which is what Pope Francis invited them to do on the flight back from Ireland. So there is a chronology of what happened with McCarrick, because the whole Vigano testimony begins with McCarrick and then drifts away. And it's clear that if something happened or something didn't happen when it was supposed to happen, was exactly during the pontificate of Pope Benedict. And so we know in these last few days, a few reports have surfaced that Pope Benedict never issued formal penalties, but communicated an informal request to keep a low profile. And this request was repeatedly conveyed to Cardinal McCarrick by the predecessor of Monsignor Vigano in Washington, D.C., Nuncio Pietro Sambi. The interesting difference is that while Sambi, who died in 2012, made repeated efforts to keep McCarrick uh, on low profile, it seems that Archbishop Vigano, who now wants to look at the great moralizer, never tried to do this. And we have multiple videos of Nuncio Vigano praising McCarrick in public. In it. So the bulk of the, the accusation have collapsed. The question remains, how could it happen that McCarrick became the Archbishop Cardinal of the nation's capital. This is a question that is still there. Okay. You know, you mentioned Pope Francis on the flight back from Ireland, recommending that journalists dig more in, into the story. In the current issue of Commonweal Magazine, the editors call on the Pope to speak instead directly to the contentions made by Vigano. Yet as of today, we're speaking on September 11th, uh, some weeks after the letter's release, Francis still hasn't really spoken publicly, even though six of the nine cardinals on the so-called C9 International Council of Cardinals recently expressed full solidarity with the Pope in the face of what has happened these last few weeks. And they say that they're aware that in the current debate, the Holy See is formulating possible and necessary clarifications. What does this statement of support signify, do you think? And why do you think Francis hasn't spoken publicly? And what does he stand to gain or lose by not being more directly forthcoming? So this statement by the C9 is important because it's the first statement of this kind issued by the C9 it has been signed by six cardinals only because the other three were absent. So the whole C9, I think, is defending Pope Francis, uh, which is something that other bishops, especially in the U.S., haven't done. So here Pope Francis hasn't uh, replied or gone into the questions during the flight from Ireland for multiple reasons. The first one 
is that this is one of the cases when it's not just enough that you try to tell the truth, is that the truth here must be extracted, liberated from a bunch of slander, which is more complicated. This is, And then there are three issues that I, I believe are important to understand why is letting other people prepare an institutional response. The first one is biographical. So Pope Francis has been subject to this kind of slander before by the Jesuits in Argentina, and a second time when he was involved in the dirty war, he was accused of being an accomplice of the military junta. And he knows that these things take time for the truth to service. The second reason I think it's institutional, because immediately after that document was published, it was clear that the real accusation was going to go against Pope Benedict and Pope Benedict's people. So the problem is that Pope Benedict is biologically alive, but is institutionally undead, which is a big problem because we know that he's keeping his silence, but his secretary, um, Monsignor Genswein, is talking a lot. And so this is a, an extremely complicated situation. The third reason, I believe, is is spiritual. So uh, Pope Francis has spoken multiple times in these last few weeks of the present moment in the life of the of the church as a kind of uh, massive global exorcism. And he, he has said that this thing needs time for the whole evil forces to come out. And this is something that I understand it is frustrating for uh, the media for journalists, but there is a spiritual vision of the church of Francis that I believe shapes his response here. I am convinced by the decision of not responding immediately and taking time. The papacy thinks in the long term of church history more than the new cycle, and this is very hard to accept for us. But it makes sense. I don't think it is uh, fear or it is not taking care or not taking seriously. I think it is the opposite. Uh, that does lend an interesting dimension to it. I think too, Massimo, for those of us here in the United States, this has really dominated a lot of the conversation. And it seems uh, the crisis or this incident seems especially rooted here in the American church. How is it being seen by Catholics elsewhere in the world? in the European Church or in the Global South? Is it dominating the discussion among Catholics the way it is here in the United States? I would say it is not dominating as it is in the United States, in part because you don't have in Europe or in other countries a Catholic media system that is so focused and is so good, is so active. And so that really shapes how Catholics perceive the Church. I've been for the third time in two years in Australia a few weeks ago, and they're going through a similar crisis with an archbishop sentenced to jail for cover-up, a massive crisis, but it is not really part of a polarization of the Catholic Church in Australia. So this is the Viganoke uh, document, especially is really rooted in a soil that is 
the ideological split within American Catholicism, which is something that for non-American Catholics is really hard to understand. What and how is it possible that one Catholic Church is split in a way that is really incomprehensible in Europe, especially not just because Europe is more secularized, but because you have a more conservative part of the church, a more liberal part of the church, but there are no uh, visible divisions as they are visible in the United States. Yeah, and this gets to something you've, you've written about for Commonweal in the past, and you've discussed generally elsewhere. You know that there's an aspect of this controversy that goes beyond the church to overlap with some of what's playing out in American culture and politics in general, uh, reflective of the polarization we see here. Maybe you could discuss a little bit of some of the dynamics that are responsible for this. When I'm asked this question, my short answer is always that a two-party system in the United States, politically, the two-party system has created a two-party church. And so this is a simplification, of course, because you don't have two parties formally established within the, the US church. But this is part of the, of the dynamic of these last few decades. So what I would say that you don't have in other countries is that first, the, uh, the alignment of the Episcopal hierarchy in the United States with the political culture and the ideology on social issues with the Republican Party. And after that, what happens in this last decade is that you have a certain metamorphosis, a change within the Republican Party which happens during the Obama administration, and the U.S. bishops that are more conservative, aligned to the Republican Party culture, they seem to follow that radicalization on the social issues. And so this is really something that you don't find in other countries first, because it's very, very rare to have a perfect two-party system in other countries. And because, again... The religious culture in other Catholic countries or Christian countries is not as shaped by the legacy of the 60s, the 70s, the, the, the culture war. I believe that what we see in the U.S. Catholic Church right now is a theological polarization, but it's a theological polarization that is theological and political. So uh, there is no real discussion in the U.S. Church on dogmatic issues such as the sacraments or Trinity, but everything has to do with the interpretation of what happened in American culture and in American church in these last 40, 50 years. And there is a fundamental split in two, which is one side saying that what happened was a moral catastrophe and one of the effects was the sex abuse crisis. But in the middle, there's also, they say, the uh, gay issue and so on. So that is one party. The other party says that these last 50 years have been a good development that should be continued. And so this is part of the debate in every church, if you want. What's typical of the U.S. is that here, these two different theological narratives, they 
match in different ways a political narrative, which is the conservative narrative of the Republican Party and the liberal progressive narrative of the of the Democratic Party. One more difference is that in the US, you have the episcopate, the bishops, in these last 30 years at least, before Francis was elected, have been appointed for the United States on a political platform and a religious platform that identified closely with the culture of the Republican Party on social issues, especially abortion, but not only. One more factor, finally, is that this identification of the conservative culture of US bishops has followed the radicalization of the Republican Party in this last decade. And so you have an extremization of the conservative culture of American Catholicism, which follows more political trajectory, more than a theological journey. And unique of the United States, as I say sometimes, uh, the U.S. Church has this, this specular problem of the Chinese Church. We know that in China there are two Episcopal hierarchies, the underground church and the patriarchal church, but the Catholic Church in China is one. In the United States, we have the opposite problem. We have one Episcopal hierarchy, but different churches, and which is more complicated to deal with culturally because there's no agreement between the government and the Holy See that can solve this. Massimo, there's also an aspect of this controversy that goes beyond the church to overlap with what's playing out in American culture and politics generally. It seems to be reflective of the polarization we see here. What are the dynamics responsible for this? Well, there is a tendency that is manifested with the fact that the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, not just the Episcopal hierarchy, but the establishments, which means theologians, official culture of the Catholic Church, has failed because it became too lenient or too complacent toward liberal culture the sexual revolution, and so on. And so schismatic tendencies manifest themselves by saying these Catholic establishment, bishops, uh, Catholic schools, academic theology, they should just be torn down and we should rebuild everything. And so this is schismatic. Why? Because the Catholic Church has always worked on the assumption that there is a fundamental communion between the people of God, their bishops, and the Pope. And so that that fundamental communion should be able to uh, resist and be stronger disagreements on point of theology. So what happens today is that the disagreements on the culture war, so what happened in the moral landscape of the U.S. in these last few years, are so strong that these strong sentiments that in the Viganò letter and those who support him against gays in the Catholic Church and so on, they are so strong that they are stronger than the sense that there is a fundamental communion that binds us. So this is interesting because there's no theological rejection of the, the apostolicity of the Catholic Church or of the structure, but there is a political assessment of the failure 
of the Catholic establishment in resisting liberalization, liberalism. And this rejection is so strong that makes this minority, because let's remember it's a minority, be willing to destroy everything and in order to rebuild at some point, somehow. These schismatic tendencies are typical right now of the fringe on the extreme right. So this would be, if it happens, it would be one schism in the series of the schisms of the right, of the 1920s, the crisis of the Action Francaise in France, and in the 1970s, 80s with the Lefebvre. So I don't think we will arrive at a schism, but certainly there are some similarities between what's happening right now in the US and in France in the 1920s, and again, France in the 1970s, 80s. Well, that seems to sort of complicate things then for where we go from here. Obviously, this story is is not done. Things are still developing. And, you know, most recently, uh, at least seven other states are now opening investigations into the possible mishandling of sexual abuse claims by Catholic dioceses. So what should we look for here in the U.S. in terms of what the American bishops might do next or what they should do next? Can we expect anything like unanimity or collegiality in terms of articulated, coherent response to this? Well, it's a difficult situation for many reasons, especially one, which is that the Episcopal hierarchy now in charge of the USCCB is culturally, theologically known uh, not for being too enthusiastic about uh, collegiality and synodality. So here there are some parallels between, again, what happens in, in the Republican Party, the new elite that doesn't believe in government is elected to govern. And so, so this is very difficult. I think that the most urgent things to do are two. One is to send signals that this church is in communion with the Bishop of Rome. So we hear that there might be the meeting between Pope Francis and Cardinal Dinardo in the next few days or in mid-September, late September. So that might happen soon. And so there is one bond, US-Rome, that has to be reestablished. Doesn't matter who's the Pope. And so now there's Francis, but this is not the real point. And the second is to re-establish some kind of visible communion in the Catholic Church in the United States, where some bishops clearly took the position of Archbishop Vigano, and implicitly they are accused Francis of being a liar and asked him to resign, which is something that I see as a real wound in the body of the of church. So all that said, I mean, this has to be done by, the, by these bishops that obviously are not very popular with Catholics doesn't matter if they are conservatives or liberals. This is uh, their unpopularity is bipartisan for different reasons. So it, it's a very hard test for them because it, it's a crisis that I don't think has similar cases around the world in these last few few decades. 
Thank you, Massimo. I have a feeling that this is a, a topic we'll be returning to uh, multiple times in coming months and perhaps longer. I've been speaking with Massimo Fagioli, a Commonweal contributing writer and a professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University. Thank you for your time, Massimo. Thank you. Thank you.